If you've been here with us for a while, we've been working our way through the book of James since about the first of the year, and today we're actually going to turn the corner, and we're going to go into the second chapter of the letter written by the brother of Jesus Christ. His name was James. And as we made our way through the first chapter of James, we learned that he has given us a series of tests to help us determine the genuineness of our faith. That's his goal. He wants you to know that your faith is real. He wants you to know that your faith is genuine. And so first, as we made our way through the first chapter, the very first thing we did was that we found how trials and struggles reveal the genuineness of our faith. Next, we considered how our reaction at times of temptation reveals the genuineness of our faith. Remember talking about that? How we handle temptations. And then we moved on and we found that people whose faith is genuine will warmly receive the Word of God. They receive the Word of God as if it were an old friend and they take it and they gladly apply it to their lives when they leave. They're not just hearers of the Word, but they actually apply the words that they've heard. And then the last time we were together, we discussed how the use of our words and the way that we treat other people who are unable to care for themselves reveal hearts that are either genuine in their faith or not. It's a great test. We learn how genuine our faith is by the way we use our words and by the way we care for those who cannot care for themselves. The way we use our words tells everyone our faith is real. And so today as we come to chapter 2, we're going to see another indicator of the character of God effectively at work in our lives that will help us to understand whether our faith is real or not. Have you ever heard the stories? I'm sure that you've heard these. I just, I don't know why why I get such a kick out of these. Have you ever heard the stories of a well-known politician or maybe a celebrity who was maybe pulled over by a police officer and after they get pulled over, they're trying to get out of trouble and, and so they'll say to the police officer, do you know who I am? Have you ever heard that one? We've probably got a few police officers here today who have actually heard that. Do you know who I am? It seems that there are some people who feel that because of their elevated place in society that people owe them something. And quite honestly, I think it's everyone else's fault. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. You see, there's just something about wealthy and powerful people that makes the rest of us do really crazy and dumb things just so that we can be near them. I mean, have you ever seen someone fall all over themselves just to get close to some minor celebrity or or to get near someone who has some money in their pocket or, or to get near someone who is powerful? Have you ever seen anybody do that? I can remember one time when I was between my junior and senior years in high school, and I had gone out to Salt Lake City, and I was at the mall, which was directly across the street from the Salt Palace. This was before we had Xbox. I was at Aladdin's Castle. How many of you old people remember Aladdin's Castle? Yeah, look at all your parents. I was hanging out at Aladdin's Castle in this mall across from the Ice Palace, and in walked a bunch of really, really tall dudes with these red, like, suits on. And all of a sudden, there was just this throng of people that came running into Aladdin's castle and they were standing next to this one guy, really tall guy who was wearing kind of like this green jumpsuit on it that said Nike. You remember the karate game where you'd use the two sticks? Remember? I can't remember what it was called, but he's standing there playing this karate game and I, you know, I liked the game. I didn't have any idea who the guy was. And so I'm just standing there like looking underneath of his armpit, standing there looking at the game, watching how he's doing. And finally somebody came up to me and said, Hey, do you know who that is? I said, no, actually I don't. He said, that's Michael Jordan. 
And it was funny because all of these people came swarming in because Michael Jordan and the whole entire Bulls team were in town to play the Utah Jazz, and here they were at Aladdin's Castle. But it was funny to watch everybody run across the mall so that they could get into Aladdin's Castle just so they could be near these celebrities. But that's kind of how we do things, isn't it? We like to be around people who are famous. We like to be around people who have some money, who have some wealth, who have some power. But I think that if we didn't act like it was such a big deal every time they walked into the room, they probably wouldn't feel so much like they deserve some level of extra privilege. Did you know that? Think about that for a minute. But we do it all the time, don't we? We run across them all so that we can see the Bulls basketball team. We want to catch a glimpse inside their little world. We want to see how well they play video games. We want to know what's going on in their lives, and that's why we like to watch shows like TMZ. Don't raise your hand if you do that, but I know some of you watch that show because you like to see what's going on in their lives. So we check out TMZ. That's why when you go to the grocery store, you can't look away from the magazines you know, that are right there next to the checkout counter. I do that. But you know, it's not just famous people. It's not just celebrities. Have you ever been at an office party? Your company gets together maybe for Christmas or whatever. You know, watch the numbers of people who look for a way to get close to the boss. Have you ever noticed that? They want a reason to have a conversation with company leadership. They want a reason to be close to the guy who's in power. And the point is that in our humanity, we have huge respect for people of elevated social status. In our humanity, we have huge respect for people who have elevated social position. But I want you to know that that's not how it is with God. God is absolutely and totally impartial in dealing with people. We, on the other hand, are very partial, aren't we? God is not partial in dealing with people. God is not partial in His dealings with people. But in our humanity, we love to put people in categories, don't we? We love to divide them up. We love to put them in categories. You see, this guy over here is higher than that guy over there because he drives a BMW. Or this guy is higher than that guy over there because he lives in this neighborhood or he lives in that neighborhood. You see, what we like to do is we like to stratify people by the way that they dress. Some people are higher or lower because of their race. This one's attractive. That one is not so attractive. I want to be with that guy over there. Because he looks nicer. He dresses nicer. But I want you to know, with people those things are important. But with God, they are non-issues. God is not impressed by the amount of money you have in your bank account. God is not impressed by the kind of clothes that you wear. A person's education, a person's economic status, a person's look, a person's wardrobe, a person's social relationships, a person's jobs, a person's earthly honor. All of those things, both collectively and individually, mean absolutely nothing to God. He's not impressed with you because of what you do. He's not impressed with you because of what you wear. Second Chronicles 19.7 tells us, Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully. Why? For with the Lord our God there is no injustice and there is no partiality. He's not partial to you. Deuteronomy 10.17 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods, and He's Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is impressed with your income. No, He's not partial. He's not partial at all. Acts 10.34, Truly I understand that God shows partiality to people who dress nicely. 
No, he says he shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and who does what is right is acceptable to him. That's what makes you attractive to him. It's because you honor him. And we could point out more places all through scripture where the Holy Spirit tells us that God does not show favoritism. God does not show partiality to man. Yet we do it all the time, don't we? We do it all the time. And not only do we do it generally, but it also happens, friends, in the church. Have you ever been to a church where you felt that the people who drove the nicest cars, who wore the nicest clothes, who lived in the nicest homes, seemed to get just a little bit more attention than the rest of us? Maybe that was the guy who got to have lunch with a pastor twice a week. I want you to know that's a real struggle in the church today. And it has been a struggle since the church began. This isn't new. This is something that has happened from the very beginning of the church age. Because you'll remember that when the church began, it began with people who were poor. It began with people who were in great poverty. They were in great need. In fact, people who had resources were selling what they had to help pay for the needs of the other people in the church. Did you know that? Kids, in the first century church... People sold what they had to help others. They sold what they had so that they could help others. And so imagine, when people of means came walking into the building, they were made welcome. Can you imagine why? They were made welcome, much like they are in churches today. They wanted to show those people special honor. Now, before we go on to our passage for today, I want to just help you set the context a little bit, okay? Those of you who have any uh, level of familiarity with the Old Testament history will remember that it was during the reign of Israel's great king Solomon that Israel built its first temple in the city of Jerusalem. That was in about the 10th century B.C. And at that time, what happened was that the people of Israel would gather together to worship the one true God at the temple. And they would bring their sacrifices and they would bring their offerings just as they had been prescribed in the books of the law. And so the temple was at the very, very center of not only religious life in Israel, but it was at the center of absolutely everything. Their worship was the center of their lives. It was the center of absolutely everything. It was incredibly beautiful. The temple was just an amazing structure. It was filled with precious stones. It was filled with precious metals. And everyone came to worship there. Everyone gathered together at the temple. But in about 586 B.C., after several generations of disobedience to God, and after several generations of intermingling the one true God with the various gods of the area, the Jewish people then of the southern kingdom of Israel, known as Judah, were invaded by Babylon, and they were carried away into captivity in the Babylonian Empire. Now, listen closely. Their beautiful temple was completely demolished. The Babylonians walked in and they plundered all the precious metals. They took away all the precious stones. They carried away absolutely everything of value, and they destroyed everything else. They leveled it. And then they took the Jewish people of Judah And they led them away from their native land into the Babylonian kingdom where they forced them to work as slaves. But these Jewish people 
had grown up with worship of God at the center of their lives. And even though they had perverted it, even though they had twisted it a little bit, even though they had welcomed other gods into their expression of worship, when they were carried away into captivity, they continued to have this need to worship. And they began, after they were carried away into captivity, just as God had designed, they began to reflect on their behavior that had landed them in such a terrible place. They began to look back at what they had done that had gotten them dragged away into captivity captivity, and they were reminded of how they had perverted the worship of God. And then at that time, they longed to be back home in Israel, worshiping God at their beautiful temple. That's what they wanted to do. But they couldn't do that because they were slaves. And unfortunately, as slaves, they didn't have the ability to worship at a beautiful temple, at this wonderful structure. And so the Jewish people then, as they were in captivity, whose passion for God had been reignited. They began to develop a new passion for God as they were in captivity. And then what would happen is they began to gather together again to celebrate their Jewish feasts and their Jewish festivals like Passover and like Pentecost and all the others. And as they did that, as they gathered together, they would review the books of the law together. They would study the Word of God. They would instruct one another from the Word of God. They began to pray together. And these little gatherings, these holy gatherings, became known as synagogue. I want you to remember that. These gatherings became known as synagogue. Kids, synagogue was a lot like church is today. Synagogue was a lot like church today. And after about 70 years of captivity, the Jews then returned to Israel and they once again rebuilt this magnificent temple. So they had been dragged away for 70 years. They came back to Israel. They once again built this fantastic temple. But when they came back from captivity, they also carried along with them the practice of synagogue. So while offerings... And the major festivals and all of those great things were still celebrated at the temple. All through the land, every town had a synagogue. Every town that had at least 10 Jewish males in it had their own synagogue. That's what it took. It took 10 Jewish males. And the synagogue then began to take place in buildings. Now, As people began to gather together in these buildings to pray and to receive instruction from the book of the law and from the prophets and the writings, and this is exactly what was happening at the time of Christ and at the time of the New Testament, these people were in the practice of gathering together at the building known as a synagogue on a regular basis. Now look, what would happen, of course, is they would still go to the temple for the major feasts and festivals, but they gathered regularly in the synagogues for prayer and instruction, just like we do at church today. And we know that Jesus attended synagogue regularly. In fact, he spoke there quite often as a guest speaker, as did the Apostle Paul. But over time, as you can imagine, the synagogue structure then began to take a more and more elaborate form. Because the more we meet together, the nicer our buildings have to be. And soon they had some of them with upper balconies and galleries where you could go up into the loft and you could watch the service from up in the gallery. And they would have a bima or a a platform, as it were. And they would have these ornate decorations and lamps all over. The floors would be decorated. There would be lamps all around the building. But listen, seating was very, very limited. 
In fact, what they would do is they would take these low benches and they would line them up along the external walls. And maybe there would be a chair or two placed around the platform. But aside from that, everyone who walked into the gathering either stood or they sat directly on the floor facing the platform. Do you see? Now listen closely. Kids, most people sat on the floor at synagogues. Now with all of that as a backdrop... I want to take you to our passage for today. And I want to begin with verse 2 rather than verse 1. And we'll come back to verse 1 in a few minutes. So let's take a look at verse 2. This is what James says. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and you say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my feet, and we're going to stop right there. Now listen. Based on what you've already learned today, this kind of paints a vivid picture for us, doesn't it? I mean, picture this. So you have this church. You have this synagogue. People are beginning to gather together for worship. They're all pulling their nice cars into the parking lot. They're walking across the parking lots. Some of them maybe are close enough they rode their bicycles or whatever. I mean, they're, they're coming to church. They're on their way to church. They're all gathering together. And you got a couple people standing at the front door meeting and greeting and doing the nice things. And there's this guy that comes strolling across the parking lot. He's just closed the door on his BMW. He's on his way in. And this guy is wearing a gold ring. Can you imagine? Just you know, a really flashy gold ring. But I like the way the original Greek language describes the man. This is what it says of him. It says that he is a gold-ringed man. He's not wearing a ring. He is a gold-ringed man. So he's got some flash. right? Very commonly, Jews wore rings... But because of the cost of rings, they didn't wear gold ones. In fact, there was a business of renting rings out. If you were going to a party and you really wanted to impress people, you could go to this business and you could rent out these gold rings. And people would rent out enough rings that they had them on every finger of their hands except for their middle fingers. And they would walk around, you know, talking like this, I'm sure, so that everybody could see their rings. Can you imagine? So here comes this gold ring man. He's just closed the door on his beamer. He's on his way across the parking lot, just shuffling along, you know, his hands up in the air so everybody can see his gold rings. And he makes his way into the church. And people looked at him. Maybe he's got several of them on. Imagine. Clearly, this guy's doing well. This guy's doing okay because he can afford these gold rings. He's looking good. But not only are his fingers gold ringed, but he is also wearing clothes that in the Greek are lampros. And what it means is lampros is brilliant. They would use, the Greeks would use this word lampros to describe the sun and to describe the stars. Can you imagine? So he's walking in with gold and bling all over his hands and his clothes are absolutely brilliant. They're brightly colored. They're clean. They're radiant. That's visitor number one. He comes walking in the door. Now, I want to take you to visitor number two. Remember, these are visitors in the church. These are visitors. Visitor number two walks in the door and this guy is poor. And not only is he poor, the Greek word is patokos. It means he is destitute. He's poverty stricken. He's a beggar. This man is so poor that he's a beggar. He's absolutely destitute. He doesn't have a penny to his name. He has absolutely nothing. He has only one pair of clothes if he's lucky. Those are the ones that he has on. They are completely dirty. They're absolutely filthy. They have not been washed. They're covered in grime. They probably stink. And the people at the door see him, and they think, 
that guy is not putting a dime in the offering at the end of service. Right? Clearly, he doesn't have a penny to his name. At the door, there's a greeter. and He's got his blue Connect card. And he's handing it out to all the people who come walking in. Right? Make sure you fill that out. Get your prayer request, by the way. You should fill out your blue Connect card. If you're a visitor, make sure you drop it in the bucket on your way out today. So they got their blue Connect card. And the Greek language tells us that when gold rings comes walking into the door, I love this, the greeter looks well at him. He looks well at him. Do you understand what's happening? He observes him closely. He's looking him up one side and he's looking him down the other with an eye of respect. He's thinking, wow, look at his gold fingers. And then the greeter says, hey, 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 Mr. Goldring, uh, come over here. Mr. Mr. Goldrings, I want to take you to the outer wall. Why did he want to take him to the outer wall? That's where all the benches were. So he takes Mr. Goldrings and he drags him across the building and he shows him the nice seats that are lining the wall. And he says, hey, you sit down right here. Let me get you a footstool, by the way. And you can just, you know, as you're sitting there, you can, you can kick your feet up and you can really relax. These are the best seats in the house. You'll be able to see the teacher who's up on the, the Bama there on the, on the platform. Nobody's big head will be in your way. You'll be able to see exactly what's going on. You're going to be so comfortable. My goal, my vision is to make sure that your church experience with us this morning is absolutely magical. If at any point in our service you think of something that I can do to make you feel a little bit more comfortable, just let me know because I'll be right over there. And I'll be watching really closely. I'll be eyeing you up one side and down the other to make sure that you're comfortable. Now, sometimes when people come to this passage... They take this passage and they make it say that the poor man is oppressed. And they make it say that the poor man is given the lowly place of a slave or a servant. And I want you to know that's not in this verse. You can't force that in here. It's not there. Listen, there is no sin committed against the poor man. Remember, he wasn't turned away. He came to the door. They didn't turn him away. He wasn't placed in some abusively low position. That wasn't the idea. Remember that most people were sitting on the floor, which would have been right at the feet of those who were lucky enough to have seats. That wasn't the problem. And so when the poor man came in, he's told, you can stand or you can sit on the floor. This is how we do things here. And that would have been customary for those people. That would not have been a big deal. And so it's important for us to note that neither of these things are wrong. I want you to understand this. Neither of these things are wrong. It is not wrong to give a good seat to the man who came in. It was not wrong for them to do that. It was not wrong for them to give the man the seat on the floor. That was not wrong. Both of those things were customary. The problem is why they did it. That's the problem, and that's found in verse 4. So I want to take you to verse 4. Now take a look at this. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? See, the problem was their motive. Why? Because they had made a distinction between the rich man and the poor man. We studied this word before. It's the Greek verb diakrino. And you'll remember that I told you that one use of this verb diacrino was in reference to people who were fighting. You remember that? And when they separated the, the two combatants so they could no longer engage each other, that was the word diacrino. They separated them. 
They also use it to speak of divorce, very clearly speaking of separation. Another use was the part in the hair, where they would part the hair to the side and that was diacrinal. There was a division. So clearly, the idea is that you have two opposing and separate things. That's the idea. Now, I want you to know, there is nothing evil about some people having money. There is nothing evil about some people being poor. There are always going to be people in this world who have more than others, and I want you to know that in itself is not a sin. The reason that they gave the rich man the nicest seat was, according to verse 4, look at this again, according to verse 4, that they had what? Evil thoughts. That's the problem. These people had evil thoughts. What do you suppose their evil thoughts were? Someone with really nice clothes and jewelry comes walking in and the preacher or the staff member goes running over to him thinking what? This is the kind of guy we need around here. This is the kind of guy we've been looking for. Maybe if we treat him right, maybe if we can, if we can make him comfortable and make him happy, we can get something from him. That's the problem. And what is it they want? His gold rings look pretty nice. He's got to have money to afford those. It'd be nice to get a little bit of his money, wouldn't it? They had not treated the men equally. The sin was that they had not treated both men equally. You got it? Listen, they tripped all over themselves to get to the guy who had the money. Did you see that? They were all over themselves getting close to that guy. They went out of their way to give him some special attention. But when the poor guy who came in having absolutely nothing to offer, they said to him, hey, yeah, go ahead, seat yourself or just stand over there, whatever you want to do. Just make sure you're not in the way of the rich guy. That was their attitude, wasn't it? Come on in. You're welcome to find a seat on the floor. Go ahead, you can stand, you know, you can stand over there like everyone else. Just make sure you're not in the way of the super rich guy that just sat down over there. And by the way, you smell kind of bad. Yeah, let's, you know, you take a bath next time so this poor, this rich guy doesn't have to smell your stank. But now going back to verse one, James tells us in verse one, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. These people in this synagogue, had decided that the rich man was better than the poor man. That's what had happened. They had shown partiality, hadn't they? Their thoughts were evil, and because of that, they had shown partiality. So where in the world is the test in this passage? Remember I told you when we started our message this morning that there was a test to help you determine the genuineness of your faith. So where is the test in this passage? And I'm going to take you to that right now. I want to take you, if I could, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're just going to look at verse 1, and it says this. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church, of course. And it says, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Um, How many of you may remember in the Old Testament book of Exodus that Moses had gone into the presence of God and he would meet with God face to face. And you remember the story about how he would come out and after he had been in the presence of God, his face would shine so radiantly that when he left God's presence and went before the people, they asked him to cover his face. They said, Moses, your face is like, it's like staring into an LED light. I mean, can you cover yourself up? And so he would veil his face. 
The reason that he had to do that is because Moses' face reflected the glory of God. It was reflecting the glory of God. And Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians, that's how it works with believers. Listen, friends, that's how it works as believers. If Moses' face reflected the glory of God, how much more will we, who have God living inside of us through the indwelling Holy Spirit, be a reflection of the glory of God? Do you see? How much more should we reflect the glory of God? Friends, as believers, we should reflect the character and the glory of God. Kids, as believers, we should reflect the character and the glory of God. In fact, John tells us in 1 John 4, 8 that God is what? He says God is love, doesn't He? God is love. And what does Jesus say to us in John chapter 13? He tells us that everyone will know we are His disciples by our, say it, love. You get that? God is love and everyone will know that you are His disciples because of your love. The same is true with all of God's other characteristics. God is, in the book of Revelation, holy, holy, holy. God is a holy God and He tells us in Leviticus 19.2 that we are to be holy as He is holy. And as the Holy Spirit lives in us, friends, we should reflect that characteristic of God's nature. Do you understand? As believers, with the Holy Spirit living in us, we reflect the character of God. Now listen, from the passages we read earlier in our time together, we very clearly see that God does not show respect for persons, does He? God has absolutely no respect for persons. Because people of genuine faith are a reflection of His character, people whose faith is genuine will also have no respect of persons. Did you catch that? That's what the whole message was about. I hope you got that, okay? No heads nodding or anything. I, I, thought, you know, I, I thought that I would have to pause there for a minute for everybody to say, oh, this is really, really tough, especially in the context of the 21st century church. Listen, I think that's why James brings it up. There is so much need, isn't there? There's so much ministry to be done. And the truth of the matter is it requires some financial resource to do that. And so the tendency then is for us to want to get our hooks into the guy with some financial means so that he doesn't go to another church. And I think what makes it worse is when the person of financial means knows it and uses that to his advantage. I have heard, well, my family and I are really large and we give a lot of money. Basically, saying, I'm someone of a lot of influence. Keep me happy, and a lot of people are going to attend with me, and we've got resources. You need us. People are going to follow me to whatever church I go to. I've got a lot of money. And as a leader, you think, wow, more money and more people. Those are important for a church, right? You know, if I just give these people what they want. What difference does it matter to me if I get together with the guy to go to lunch with him once a week? I mean, maybe we'll get some extra toys for the kids' ministry. Maybe, maybe we'll get some extra money for the trip to Guatemala and think of what we could do with a couple thousand extra dollars in Guatemala. But at what cost? Listen, it's a trap. We must never 
fall into the trap of showing favor to people just because they have gold fingers. We never fall into the trap of showing honor and favor to people because their clothing is lamprose, brilliantly shining, just wonderful clothing, brilliant clothing. How we react to people when they walk in this door, Root River Church, it's a test. It's a test. And I want you to know that if we are a church who reflects the character of God, we will not be favoring certain people because of their status. We will not be favoring certain people because of their education, because they got a bunch of letters after their names. That mo- I-, I don't understand most of them anyway. We will not be showing favor to people because they have money. We will not show favor to people because they have fame or prestige or because they look so nice or whatever for whatever reason. There is no place for favoritism in the heart of God. And there is no place for favoritism in the heart of God's people. And therefore, there is no place for favoritism in the church body. As a church... We will continue to do the work that God has called us to do without regard for the people who sit in the seats. I want you to hear this. This is super important. If God has called Root River Church to ministry, you can be sure that He's going to take care of the accounting. You can be sure that He'll provide for us the resources we need to minister in the way that He wants us to minister, even if a rich person leaves. We just need to continue to be faithful. We need to be continued to be faithful to honor God in our time of worship together. We need to make sure that we are careful and diligent in our handling and our ministry of the Word of God without regard for who is sitting in the seats. We need to make sure that we are careful to reach into the community to whatever extent the resource that God has provided us allows us to minister. Do you understand? To whatever extent we're able to do that, maybe it's just a parade on the 4th of July. We're going to do it, and we're going to do it the very best that we possibly can. If for some reason God gives us hundreds of thousands of dollars that we can take down into Guatemala to minister to people who live in the trash dumps, we'll take that down there and we'll minister to them. To whatever extent He empowers us to minister to the people of our community, to that extent we'll be faithful to minister. It doesn't matter who's here. We're not here to honor the people who make money. We're here to honor God. And I want you to know that God will take care of it all. And we must never allow the enticement of people's power, of their prestige, and their finance to become a distraction to the work that God has called us to do. Why would we do that to ourselves? I want you to know that this passage in James speaks directly to favoritism in the church. And so I don't want to go too far with it because that's what it's talking about. But I think we could easily, friends, apply this to every other area of our lives as well. I'm not going to go too far with this because it's not in the passage, but I want you to hear this. Young people, when you are in school, do you show a certain level of preference to the kids who are on the basketball team or the football team? Do you do that? When you're in school, do you prefer to be seen with people who are wearing the most expensive shoes and the classiest jeans? Is that who you want to be seen with? I did. That's who I wanted to hang out with. How do you treat the students whose hair is a little bit messy and maybe even looking a little bit greasy? How do you treat those people? Do you diacrino? Do you divide? Do you make distinction? Do you separate them into different categories? These are the clean people that I'll hang out with. These are the unclean. I won't sit at the lunch table with them. Do you prefer to not be seen with those people? Adults, 
This can be applied to you as well. There's no doubt about it. Beth and I still get a kick out of the lady who one time said, I, this was great. I probably shouldn't tell you this, but I'm going to anyway. <laughs> Minivans are just so ghetto. Minivans are, and I thought, wow, you know, this is the nicest car I've ever had. My minivan's pretty swanky. <laughs> minivans are just so ghetto. You see, people in her neighborhood, people in her neighborhood needed to drive something a little more impressive than a minivan, for crying out loud. And the principle that James is teaching is that when you do that, you are dividing people and you are making distinction and you are not to do that. Kids, God is not honored when we choose favorites. Genesis 1.27 tells us in closing that the very image of God has been imprinted on every single one of us. It's been imprinted on the one with the minivan, it's been imprinted on the one with the BMW. How is it possible for people who accurately reflect God's character to diacrinal the image of God Himself? How can you divide the character of God Himself? How can you do that? How is it possible for us to say this image of God is more attractive than that image of God? Can you do that? That's what you're doing. We should never make distinctions for ourselves. We must never allow the evil thoughts of our sinful nature to make judgments which attempt to divide the very image of God Himself. Father, I thank You so much for every single person in this room. I thank You, God, that Your image has been implanted on every single one of us. Lord, it's my prayer that You would help Root River Church to never be a body that would ever diacrino, that would ever divide, that would ever separate based on social stratification. But God, let us humbly receive every person who walks through the door. Let us humbly worship You with them in spirit and in truth. Let us humbly divide the Word of God and share it with them that they may be grown in their faith. And let us humbly work together to reach the community that is surrounding us to whatever extent You empower us to do that. We ask these things in Jesus' name.